All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for a, unify, a unifying faith, Father, that you've given to us by grace, motivated by your love, Father. How awesome it is to look to our left and our, our, left and our right to see fellow believers marching to the beat of the same drum, Father. Thank you for this. Thank you for days like today, Father. It's the little things that encourage us. We know that it's by your faithfulness, again, motivated by love, that you do these things and reveal them to us and give us the faculties to appreciate them. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us for a variety of reasons, and we pray for those that are still lost. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 52. I hope uh, you all had the chance to listen to both Sunday's and Tuesday's messages titled Resurrection uh, Sunday Special. Um, as always, they were wonderfully placed reminders of all that we have to be grateful for. Just prior to that, though, we had finished Part 51 of The Deceitfulness of Sin. And if you recall... We began both parts, 50 and 51, with the same theme, if you would. Um, call, let's call it, we pervert everything theme. Just sort of a acknowledgement of what we, what we do to everything. Uh, everything. I mean, we, we typically point to you know, bad things, but we can take something pure and good and divine and just pervert it. And what's supposed to be a blessing now is a curse. And so the Spirit had us thinking about how we really go about perverting everything. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes, uh, given the nature of the deceitfulness of sin, and I think that's the purpose of series like this, is we don't always recognize it. We don't always see it as it's even unfolding in our own lives. We are part of this car wreck in slow motion and we don't realize we're in the car until sometimes you know we suffer some bumps and bruises and the spirit has you know messages like this one to sort of wake us up and say the reason you're hurting the reason you have all those bumps and bruises and those scars is because you've been deceived by something insidious called sin and Remember, you have a sin nature, so the first place you look is within yourself. What is it that you're partaking in? What is originating with you? You know, a lot of, um, let's call it cowardice, cowardice in the spiritual life. We like to do, you know, the blame game. We like to point outside of us, you know, it's so-and-so's fault, or, you know, I had bad parents, or, you know, I grew up this way, or I grew up that way, and this tragedy happened, and that's the, way I, that's the reason I'm the way I am. Come on, man, you're 50. It's time to call a spade a spade. It's time to recognize that there's something in you that is perverse, terribly so, and arrogant, and uh, refusing to be humbled by truth. And so that's the cause or the reason for this series and those messages like it. The deceitfulness of sin is exposed, and as we know, uh, the human flesh does not like that at all. And all I can say is what I told you in the first couple of weeks of this series. As soon as I got on the deceitfulness of sin, I said, just buckle down because you will be attacked from day one. I don't even know how many months it's been, months now. From the beginning of this series, uh, I can personally say that it's, been a, that it's been attack after attack. It's been a real struggle, I guess. And um, what the Spirit shows us, if we're open to it, is that it really is a lot to do with just recognizing the human flesh in ourselves and in others. Just learning to, oh man, hate sin. I 
hate sin so bad. I cannot wait until I don't have to deal with it anymore. And I'm not being selfish. I'm just saying as a general rule, um, ah, it's just awful. It's, just, it's a disease. Sin is awful. Anyways, um, the Spirit had us, uh, gave us this uh, last Thursday. And this was, again, on the coattails of that, you know, we pervert everything theme. Doing nothing is an activity. Uh, there's some people that say, um, you know, I'm saved now. I'm going to be like Sweden and I'm going to stay neutral. No, you can't do that. That's not how it goes. Neutrality is actually evil because you have a calling on your life. And that calling requires that you be a doer, not merely a hearer who deludes themselves. So you can't take the Sweden route. This is an active life that we live. We're not called to sit there and rest on our laurels. And if you're doing that thing as a so-called Christian, I would argue that you have a bigger problem potentially. That if you're not motivated somehow, something might be wrong. And that also has been a big portion of uh, the messages from this pulpit ever since we really spun up the gospel again back in, I think it was October of 2015. So again, doing nothing is an activity. If you choose to say, I choose to do nothing, you've just made a decision, taken a stance, rejected the Lord's unction. To follow Jesus implies real activity, thoughts, behaviors, a.k.a. obedience. Obedience. And it's funny because um, the more I read the Bible, the more I realize that obedience isn't just wrought with blessings. In other words, it's not just that thing. Obey and you'll be blessed. But it is an imperative, an absolute. It's not just, again, something that ushers in blessings. It's not like, you know, well, I'm obey or command, and because I'm obeying the commands of the Lord, I'm going to be blessed. That is actually true. But it's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. It's, it's literally an imperative. It's an absolute for believers. That's what I'm learning. So at the end of the day, because of the nature of obedience, it isn't optional. <laughs> it's not even an option for a believer. And if you're a believer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You say, I don't have an option. There's many times, I've told you this, this is silly to say this, but there's many times I'm like, man, I just, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. People drive me crazy. I got, enough, my, I got enough of my own problems. I don't need to look at, you know, 50, 60 faces and say, you know, now I got to be concerned about these people as well. And he's like, you don't have an option. And I go, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm just venting, complaining because I'm human. Weak. We don't have an option. And if you're a believer, you know that. You know that you've been purchased with a price. You know that you've been made new. You know that you're his. You're a slave of the great master, Jesus Christ himself. So obedience has to take on a different thing in our heads, not a religious tone. It can't just be, well, I'm going to obey and then you know, be blessed, this formula, formulaic type thing. We have to, it has to become more than that. We have to understand the way God sees obedience. It's an imperative. It becomes who we are. And if you look at Jesus Christ, our prototype, that literally, that defines him, doesn't it? He, it literally defines his ministry. He said, I came to follow my Father's will. That's it. It literally defined who he was. And if that's our prototype, then that's who we are being sanctified into being like. Christ-like, Christian. So it's a divine imperative. It's an absolute that we obey. Literally, if you look at Jesus Christ and his life, that was him. He, he manifested obedience. And he also manifested other things, as we'll see in a brief moment. So it isn't optional for a believer We've got to wrap our heads around that. Uh, this is something that Jesus plainly stated. But I sometimes think that it is so plain, the way he stated it, it is so plain 
that we can overlook, and I'm going to use a word, the profundity of it, how profound it is. We can overlook the profundity of it, how profound it actually is. It's so plain. <laughs> I think we just go, yeah, but that was Jesus, you know. Or he was just waxing poetic. He really wasn't. Go to John 14, 15. Jesus wasn't about waxing poetic. He really was, a, you know, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but and discredit him. Or, he was just a down-to-earth, straight-shooting man. He just would say it the way it is. This is the way it is. <laughs> and they killed him for it. But look at this. It's just so plain, I think, that it's easy for us to sort of glaze over it and just say, well, that's like, you know, I don't know, unattainable. It's just, it's just so plain. John 14, 15. So simple, though, isn't it? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you see it? If I took out all the other words except three, if and you will, do you see it? If, doesn't matter, you will. You understand? If this, you will that. Nice and simple, right? If, oh, and all right, so now we get the descriptions. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If, you will. If this is true, then this is true. That's all he said. It's so simple, I think sometimes we just glaze over it. But that's what makes it an imperative. That's what makes it an inescapable reality for a true believer. And that is one of the, the, the hallmarks of a true believer versus a professing unbeliever. Someone who might apostatize later on. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's not a whole lot of wiggle room in Jesus' statements on the connection between love and obedience. And just as a side note, I was thinking about that because some people are like, oh, I love Jesus and I obey Him, but here's something we have to remember up here on the board. Serving truth, not feelings. This was something that came up, I want to say, now a good solid month or two ago. <clears throat> we don't have the right to feel our doctrines into existence. We don't have the right to feel our doctrines into existence. Whatever we are meant to believe is laid out in the Bible. Jesus Christ just said, perfectly plain, wasn't English, but translated as such, plain speech, let's call it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we don't have the right to feel that we love him and then somehow that we exist with that emotion in the absence of obedience. I would argue that's how a lot of so-called Christians exist. I feel like I love Jesus. I love Jesus for dying on the cross. So I love him. Yeah, but you have no inclination whatsoever to obey. So really what it is is just a feeling you have about Jesus, about God, you know. So we don't have the right to feel our doctrines into existence. Whatever we are meant to believe is laid out in the Bible, which also says in Deuteronomy 4.2, <clears throat> You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may make or keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So in other words, what's ever in the Bible is what counts, not necessarily what we feel. And so that brings out a corollary up here on the board. The object of obedience, it matters. Because some people obey their feelings. That's the point. The Bible interprets life and our feelings therein. We use this here as our interpreter. This is what matters. This is what interprets our lives and our feelings. Life doesn't interpret the Bible. We don't go to the Bible and impose our life and find things that suit or support our lifestyle. We go to the Bible to have it interpret our life. It doesn't, you can't flip it around. 
You can't say, well, I feel like this is right. So I'm going to go find a way to organize Scripture in such a way that I can justify my ungodly living. In other words, I'm not really interested in obeying the Bible. I want the Bible to obey me. I don't want to be a slave of the Word of God. I want the Word to be a slave of mine. And that's that trick that people use, and that's what lawyers do. They're not interested in the, you know, I'm talking about a, a sinister lawyer like Satan, Hasatan, right? They, they, use the, they use the law for their own purposes. They're not interested in the spirit of the law. They're interested in how the law can serve their purposes. And I would argue a lot of Christians do that, which is why they search for a church that teaches in such a way that serves their purposes. The Bible says in end times, the ears get tickled. They're looking for that thing that, that resonates to the human flesh. They just want their ears tickled. They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in being obedient. So the Bible interprets life and our feelings therein. Life doesn't interpret the Bible. The object of our obedience must be truth alone, which is the Word of God. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John 1.17b. Very simple. The object of our obedience then is Christ Jesus himself. That's why also for some of you, myself included, I'm sure, the red letters, do you not love them now? Were there not years for some of you, years past, where you kind of were like, eh, or mm, I'm so screwed up, I think that's a different dispensation, I'm not even going to read them. I can't get enough of them. I mean, if grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ, I want to know the truth. And if, the tr if truth is what interprets my life, I want to know what the truth has to say about my life. <laughs> right? So I, I really want to know what Jesus has to say. That's what I want to know. The Bible interprets life and our feelings. Life doesn't interpret the Bible. The object of our obedience must be truth alone, which is the Word of God. Grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. The object then of our obedience is Christ himself. This means that we are to obey his commandments, period. And again, synthesizing, you know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Synthesizing. He never asks us to do something we're incapable of doing or to outstretch his grace. If he changed you when he saved you, which he did, then he changed you in such a way that you will obey, that you're inclined to obey. Now, we know we don't do that 100% because we're still flawed experientially, but we know that we're changed to the degree that somewhere in us, our new creature wants to obey. So, that imperative is on our life then. It's met by the grace of God, but nonetheless, for a true believer, that imperative is designed into our spiritual walk, that we obey, with our prototype being Jesus Christ, who literally was the manifestation of obedience. And we're being sanctified or transformed into his image. So it all adds up. It makes total sense that we obey. Go to John 15, verse 8. I'm going to show you something. <clears throat> John 15, verse 8. That's when obedience, when you realize that, obedience is actually a very good thing. It's a blessing in of itself. It's not that adolescent viewpoint like, ugh, got to obey. John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You notice he didn't say, um, if you bear much fruit. He said that you bear much fruit. You know why? Because he's also the same person who spoke the parable of the sower and the seeds, isn't he? And if you recall, at the very end, the last of the four categories, he said, good soil will produce always. That's in accordance with what he's saying here. He said, my father is glorified by this. That you, the good soil, seed fell on it, 
Out comes a good crop, you bear much fruit. There's no question. You will bear fruit if you're saved. If you're a true disciple. And my father, he said, is glorified by that. That you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And we should never shy away from that. Regardless of what contemporary watered-down Christianity has to say. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Again, look at this. You ready? Three words. If and you will. But it's reversed. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Again, He was the perfect. He did it perfectly. We don't. Now, I need you to concentrate because here we have the sister statement to what we just noted in John 14, 15. that said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what we have then is a bi-directional pair of interlocking promises. If you can almost visualize it, think of like love and obedience, okay? Jesus looks from the perspective of love towards obedience. If you love me, you will obey. And then from the perspective of obedience back towards love. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And all I can see is almost like this. Like he's locking in two statements like this. And he locks love and obedience into the same sphere. In other words, they're intrinsically bound. That's the imperative. They're intrinsic to each other. If you love, you obey. If you obey, you love. If you love, you obey. If you obey, you love. That's intrinsic to a true believer in Christ Jesus because that's what brings glory to God. And we know why He leaves us here after He saves us. That's His intention. To glorify Himself. And oh, by the way, there's a bunch of rubbernecking angels looking too. If he says he's going to do something, Philippians 1.6, you know what? He's going to do it. He says, if you're able, by my grace, then I want you to do it. I'm going to have you do it. And I believe that a, a true believer in Christ Jesus knows this. It might be distant when you first save this whole thing. It might have to develop over time. But I believe that imperative is known. I think that when you're saved, you have been given new marching orders. And your new creature wants to obey. And loves Christ. And has a relationship to God the Father, just like Christ said. So, that's what I see. A pair of interlocking promises from the perspective of love... If you love, you obey. If you obey, you abide in my love. I see these, it just locks them together. So he locks in a doctrine, so to speak, together his pair of promises, as they're stated, if and you wills, they interlock. All right, look at verse 11. <clears throat> these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love is known than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you see the interplay between love and obedience? It's like, I want you to lay down your friends. Lay down your life for your friends. It's going to bring glory to the Father. That's what I want. I'm commanding it. I want you to do it. Because I also want you to experience love. You can't escape the two. That's the point. If you talk about obedience, you immediately have to engage with the idea of love. If you talk about love, you immediately have to engage with obedience because they're interlocked. You see, that's much deeper than a religious practice of if I obey, I get blessings, right? It becomes you. This is who you are. You're obedient because you love. You love because you're obedient. They're together. You can't speak of one 
without the other. That's what Jesus teaches us. I think it's so simple that we just sort of like go, whew, sometimes. We read right over the top of it. And we don't see it as an imperative. We see it somewhat religiously. As, okay, I'll obey so I can be blessed, because, you know, everybody wants to be blessed, right? No, it's deeper than that. It's, it's, a, it's a true Christian imperative. Love and obedience. Probably why he's been bringing up obedience so much from this pulpit for a very long time. And I think it's just so easy to get religious about it. And even as some outside of this church, say, or maybe even some that have left, do, do not understand what I'm teaching right now. They don't understand it. They're still enslaved to some old religious thinking. And then they'll accuse this type of teaching as being religious or even a, like a works-type program or something like that. They'll take something, I don't know, just like I started off, they'll take something beautiful and pure, something that we just saw Jesus say, lock it, that's locked together divinely, and pervert it, and then ruin it, and then ruin the whole thing. But to each their own, everybody has to grow up, right? Some of you are just realizing this for the first time, so what, are we going to judge people because they were you yesterday? <laughs> How many people do we have in our lives who say, I believe in Jesus and therefore I'm going to heaven? And yet they have no regard for His commandments. They aren't even interested in learning them. I know a lot of people like that. That I don't know what the last tally is, but not that long ago I saw a statistic in the United States that supposedly some really high number, maybe 85 is too high, but I think it was 85% claimed to be Christian in this country. There's no way. There's, I'm, I'm not God, so I can't say 100%, but I'm convinced there is just no way that 85% of this country is, is a true believer in Christ Jesus. Most of the people I meet that even say they're Christian could care less about Jesus, know really nothing about Him, don't even have the gospel right, and really, their lives are an indictment against, their, against obedience itself. So in other words, just that whole, what I just described, ejects them out of the sphere we just developed in Holy Scripture. If these two things are interlocked and they're interchangeable and there's basically one sphere that Christ said, abide in it, and you get love and obedience, just abide in, it, abide in me the way I abide in the Father because this is divine thinking, love and obedience, they're one and the same. You know, God and Jesus and the, and the Holy Spirit, they've never been out of step. They don't have to do that military change step. Do, do they ever have to do that? No, never. They're always lockstep. So obedience is implied. You, you know what I'm saying? But I don't know where I was just going with that. There's a lot of people out there that, have a, that immediately have a, their thinking ejects them from even... Cons Con proper consideration of being in that and abiding in that sphere, that beautiful, pure sphere of love and obedience. Their lives are an indictment to them. So I know a lot of people like that that have really no regard for His commandments or even Jesus when Jesus Christ is the fullness of grace and truth. I would say that the majority of so-called Christians that I've met over the years fall into this category of mankind. The truth, though, is that for believers, we are or have been recruited into Christ's army, at which point our spiritual service of worship, Romans 12.1, and therefore our commitment to obedience has truly begun. It's part of who we are. And that's why the military analogy works. It's because we... Enlisted, we've been enlisted into Christ's army. And it's implied that if you enlist in the army, you obey. You want to obey. Because you agree with the purpose of said army. That's the whole idea. That's why people even join the army in America voluntarily, because they at least agree with the purpose of the army. And that's a, obviously a flawed analogy, but you get the point. 
Last week, the Spirit got practical with us using work ethics as a manifestation of that which exists within us, obedience, namely a desire to obey Christ's command to work hard as unto Him and not for our fellow humans. We might serve fellow humans, but at the end of the day, we work as unto the Lord. And that's a practical command. And it requires a certain amount of what? Obedience. Christ's Spirit also warned us not to hyper-spiritualize Holy Scripture in order to render His practical commands impotent. In other words, there are, there's a tendency, I believe, knowing what I know about some people's belief system, to spiritualize very practical statements in Holy Scripture. To say, no, 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 that's just, you know, it's all spiritual warfare, therefore it's all between the two ears. What I see in the Bible, and what you should see in the Bible, is a work ethic that originates, that is authored by God Himself. Work ethic. And what's wonderful about that is that it doesn't have any boundaries. It's an ethic. Work ethic. Go to Matthew 11.30. Matthew 11.30. We'll get to where uh, Jesus said, you know, I've been working this whole time just like my father. But here's Matthew 11.30. Like if you're not careful... You could hyper-spiritualize this. Is this a spiritual statement? You bet. But as the Spirit's been teaching us, this is about an overall work ethic, a mindset, a preparedness, a readiness, a fitness for service, if you would. Matthew 11.30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Up here on the board, this is a review. My yoke is easy... This implies that we have been yoked. We're not going to just yoke an oxen and just say, all right, we're going to yoke these two oxen together and leave them like that for the rest of their life. No, we yoke them to do work. In other words, the yoke comes with an implied purpose, right? We put this thing on them to get ready to go plow a field. So this idea of a yoke implies something. The analogy is to oxen that have been purposed to plow fields. We are called fellow workers, Philippians 2.25, 1 Thessalonians 3.2, etc. Because we labor for the Lord, this is the furthest thing from laziness. So a yoke implies being made ready for labor. That's it. Don't try to hyper-spiritualize. Don't try to make it something that it's not. This is about general work ethic, being ready and prepared for service. So a yoke implies being made ready for labor, and a burden describes said labor. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we are to become armchair warriors. I'm sure some of you know some people that are like that. They say, I'm a Christian, and they're armchair warriors. Because they've done this thing, which is very accommodating to the flesh, by the way. They've hyper-spiritualized the practical side of living out of the spiritual life altogether. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we're supposed to be that person, an armchair warrior. In fact, it encourages just the opposite. Here's a plainly stated doctrine that we've developed over the years. Jesus prefers doers, not hypocrites. Jesus prefers doers, not hypocrites. I mean, think about who he chose for his, for his apostles. Who did he choose? Hard workers. Isn't that funny? Not the intellectual ones. The ones who worked with their hands. I'm not saying you have to be a hand, you know, even today you have to be, you know, if you don't work with your hands, you're not a hard worker. But just look at the visualization even. Look at who he chose. He chose fishermen. Right? Who did he not like? The, guy, the, the Pharisees, the guys, the intellectuals. 
who wouldn't lift a finger and just put burdens on people. Isn't that funny? Jesus prefers doers, not hypocrites. So people that hyper-spiritualize everything in the Bible, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They like to point fingers. They like to talk a big game. But when push comes to shove, they never lift a finger. An awful lot of gabbing, you know, gum flapping, not enough doing. You ever heard that saying? Okay, people, enough, enough this. How about a little more of this? Jesus prefers doers, not hypocrites. And doers do. And here's the point that he's getting at. Doers do no matter what the circumstances demand. That's the key because we're talking about a work ethic. We're talking about something bigger. We're talking about a mindset that is divine. Doers do, no matter what the circumstances demand, whether it's praying or learning or maybe going out and physically helping the brethren with a need. Doers do, no matter what. That's it. That's the mindset. Whatever it takes. What if Jesus and his apostles were a bunch of armchair warriors? They would have never been done any missions. It's too hard. My feet are sore. I don't have my Doc Martens. They didn't have Doc Martens back then. Just saying. I don't have my $150 gel shoes. <laughs> it didn't matter. It's whatever was required to fulfill the mission. Here's the point. Doers aren't even inclined. Doers, I mean, the ones with the right mindset. They're not even inclined to try to hyper-spiritualize holy doctrine. It's not their inclination. Rather, in their integrity, they have a whatever-it-takes, DJ, to get the slide back, they have a whatever-it-takes attitude. See? For that moment, he was convicted. <laughs> Let me say that again. Doers aren't inclined to try to even hyper-spiritualize holy doctrine. Rather, in their integrity, they have a whatever-it-takes attitude. Whatever it takes. I don't even care. Just tell me what I got to do. Whatever it takes. That is the person I always tried to hire. Whenever I was in a position where I had influence over hiring or directly hiring, that's the person I always tried to hire. I didn't care. The guy that came in with the, you know, the, the brass and the, you know, the talk the big game, mouth flapped. And I'm not saying that doesn't, you know, that's not part of doing in some jobs. I'm just saying... It, I look for a can-do, whatever-it-takes attitude. If you, t if you just show me that you want to work, you just show me that you're a doer. We can work with the rest, right? We can train you. We can do whatever. Um, those are the best employees to have. They're also the best soldiers. Right? I mean, Joey will tell you that. The last person you want is a union rep in a trench. can't shoot that guy that's about to stab you in the face because that's not my job description. I'm a medic. I do sutures. Now, I want a guy that's going to come flying over the top of me, buckaroo bonsai, and take the guy out. Whatever it takes. Huh. Whatever it takes attitude. I was thinking about Another example, I think mothers are a perfect example of this. Good ones, that is. Some of you are like, not mine. <laughs> I mean, good mothers 
are a perfect example of this whatever-it-takes attitude. For they do whatever it takes minimally to protect their young, risking their own life and limb if necessary. I guess that's why it's so disturbing to see the state of mothers nowadays, but I'll save that for a blog or something because I'll go off on a tangent for about five or ten minutes. But that a good mother has that attitude, whatever it takes. Just change the diaper, kid decides to explode again all over the car, whatever it takes. Guess I'm going at it again. Kids can be quite explosive. <laughs> whatever it takes. Mess with their young. I guess that's, again, why it's so disheartening nowadays to see what, see what I see. People, mothers wanting children, but they don't actually want to be mothers. Back to our point, Philippians 2.25, but I thought it necessary to send you, up here on the board, up, here we go, up here on the board, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Now, does that sound like an active ministry or a passive one? It's, of course, it's active. He's like, whatever it takes. I mean, if someone has needs... We don't know what Paul's exact needs were, but there were probably many. We don't know. So there's a very can-do, whatever-it-takes attitude that you see if you're open to it, if you read it humbly in the Bible. It's just a bunch of people that God has selected that do whatever it takes to get the job done. No unions, no prima donnas, whatever it takes. And that's why when I taught on leadership years ago, if you have the right attitude about leadership, you're just the greatest servant. Everybody wants to be a leader, you know, for the brass and the, and the money, not realizing that a good leader actually is a greater servant. Jesus, that's something Jesus taught. Whatever it takes. Ask any good leader. Who's the last person to go home? The good leader. Who's the first one there in the morning? The good leader. Because you know why? Things proverbially fall through the cracks. And when the buck stops at you, guess what? You have it. Well, you know what? Maybe that was your job this past Resurrection Sunday. Maybe you let something fall through the cracks. Maybe it was your job. Maybe you were the, the, the spiritual leader in the group. And you were, you know, too busy, I don't know, whatever it is you were doing. And let, every, and let, let it literally fall right past you through the crack. That's not a whatever it takes attitude. And that's what the Spirit's trying to develop in us. And once your eyes are open to it, that obedient side of you will respond. Because that's how you've been made new. Again, being yoked implies work. Up here on the board, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. For the sake of review, let me give you some scripture from last Thursday on this point. I'll go quickly, and I'm giving them to you in the American Standard Version. Again, not a plug for that Bible translation, but it's a really good translation. So if you're gonna, if you're in the, if you're in the um, market for a new Bible, get the ESV. In my opinion, I'll still use an ASV up here or the New American, but whatever. They're pretty close, but I'll sneak in this uh, translation whenever I can. Proverbs 13:4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs uh, 18.9 Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. 
Proverbs 19.15, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Proverbs 21.25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 24.33-34, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Then Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Do it. Work as unto the Lord. Thinking back on that, for motivation's sake, just remember that this work ethic Let's just call it that, since that seems to be the Spirit's choice this evening. This overarching work ethic that is authored by God Himself has a purpose. And so if you lack motivation, that's where the purpose comes in. That's where realizing who and what you are in Christ Jesus, that's where realizing what the Great Commission is, let's say. That's where realizing what a spiritual gift is. That's where realizing all these things, they, they establish your purpose so that the work ethic doesn't dry out, doesn't run out of gas, and doesn't run on fumes every day. That you actually have a purpose. So just remember that this work we speak of has a purpose. It isn't vapid or simply to fulfill some command. There's a reason for it. And ultimately, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it all comes down and back to the gospel. Work is an overarching theme in the Bible. A doctrine, even, that touches all others, whether you believe it or not. It's there. The Word of God is alive and powerful and active. You know, in, in, in electrical engineering terms, we call that work. <laughs> when something moves or flows, that's called work. Something has to push it, right? Things don't just move. There's work to be done. So work is an overarching theme in the Bible, a doctrine that touches all others, which makes sense considering that God is the author of this Quote, whatever it takes attitude. Who do you think is giving that to you right now? Either I'm filled with the Spirit or I'm not. Who do you think is giving you this, this message right now? Who's the author? Who's the one actually speaking? Not, not, it's not Ed Collins, I can tell you that. It's, it's not me. God is the author of this whatever it takes attitude that He's trying to your benefit, by grace, to bless you with. Seeing it clearer and clearer. I promised you this one up here on the board, John 5.17, this work ethic. I didn't make it up. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. God is the divine author of work. He says, this is what I do. I mean, think of Genesis when, in the creation account. You worked for six days. You rested on the seventh. Okay. Six out of seven days, he worked. He doesn't begrudge us rest. You don't have to become a workaholic. But he really is the author of work. And who's done more work than God? <laughs> Not you. <laughs> right? I mean, work ethic, and I'm not just talking about, you know, physical work. I'm talking about a mindset. Whatever it takes. Let's do this thing. I'm part of a team now. Whatever it takes. Let's read Paul's words now. Go to Colossians 3.23. Colossians 3.23. Pride is the killer. Pride is the killer of work ethic. That is, um, uh, in many ways, the American uh, status quo, the American norm now is pride. People don't, you know, people won't dig a ditch. 
I have a degree, so here's a shovel. I give you 15 bucks an hour to dig a ditch. I could never do that. Why not? Do your arms work? No, for real. Do your hands work? Yep. Do your feet work? Then go, here's a shovel and go dig a ditch. You don't have, you don't have work right now, so go do whatever it takes to support your family. How about that? I didn't say that. The Lord said that. The Lord is the author. Whatever it takes. Do you understand? Whatever it takes. Just do it. End of story. Love and obedience. You see, someone who bucks what I just said, it might be some of your own souls, someone who bucks that does not understand what I taught in the first half of this message is still struggling with that thing. I don't believe there's any of you in here that really struggle with that, but you might know some people that really struggle with that. And because they really struggle with that, then you have to go back to that, do they have a bigger problem? Is it possibly a bigger problem in view? Are they, are they that uh, anti-Christ in their thinking that they literally are still anti-Christ? Is that a possibility? Yep. Because my Bible says that if he saved me, he's going to turn me on to these things. I'm going to be attuned to these things. I'm going to want to obey. I'm going to want to work. I may you know, complain. Like, I really don't want to dig a ditch. I'm almost 50. I'm sore. But I'll dig a ditch. How can I possibly complain when I read about Paul? Nobody's throwing me out of windows. No one's stoning me to death. No one's throwing me out in the ocean to drown, to leave me dead. Nobody's doing that to me. Nobody hates on me. I get to walk into a mall or whatever. I don't really walk in the mall, whatever. I get to walk into a whatever, and nobody wants to kill me. How can I possibly complain about maybe someday digging a ditch? Shouldn't I be privileged to be in a country where a Christian isn't killed while he's digging a ditch? There are some countries where you go to dig a ditch, and you're in public, and they know you're a Christian, so they kill you. So it's hazardous just to go to work. I can actually go to work, and someone's willing to pay for my labor, I think. <laughs> Anyways, what did Paul write? Colossians 3.23. It's just a mindset. That's all I'm trying to teach you. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. Don't be a little prima donna. That's, that's working for men. That's working for the sake of pride. Don't be a little prima donna. Do whatever it takes. Seriously. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. How about Ephesians 5.13? Go there. Ephesians 5.13. I love, love, love the, the angle in which the Spirit's been developing this work ethic. Because um, it really is a doctrine in the Bible. Work ethic, good work ethic. It is actually a doctrine. It is actually uh, has actually a prominence in the Bible. And we just read, we just saw Jesus Christ say, "I'm working. My Father works. He's always at work." Ephesians five thirteen. I always get a kick out of that. This is funny. Not to digress again, but I will. So. We could see a picture, if I showed you a video right now of, say, uh, Kenya, right? Look at God at work in that orphanage. It's unbelievable. Look at all those children that are being cared for and all that stuff. You know what? There were men and women, maybe even children, that helped build the place where those orphans are, that worked in the field for the food that goes on their 
table at night, that bought shoes and clothing and all that other stuff. Isn't the Lord, isn't it wonderful how the, wor- the, the Lord's at work? And it's magic. <laughs> they just showed up and there was an orphanage. No, there were people who were willing to work really hard with very little money in some cases to build an orphanage. That actually takes, you ready? Work. No glory. Nobody's saying, oh my God, you're a spiritual giant. No. Hey, get me the, I almost said the effing. I'll say the effing. Can I say that? That's not wrong, right? Get me the, get me the nails. If you ever been on a construction site, it's impossible for me to describe it without something close to it. Get me the nails. And it's not that pretty. Right? And if you come back with screws, it's double. <laughs> now you get ridiculed by everybody and you get beat down. Where's the glory in that? Are you serving the Lord? Yep. But in that moment, it's, it stinks bad. It's uncomfortable. Okay, tell that to Jesus who hung on a cross. Tell that to Paul in those long journeys. You think everybody was going, oh my God, Paul, you're amazing. We do that now. What about all that time he lived? All those very long, lonely walks. For real, do you forget about that? Really long, lonely walks where there were robbers and wild animals and all kinds of pretty stuff, you know what I'm saying? That's hard work. We have a Bible because he obeyed. Do you understand? He, he wrote about his, his, the things he did. That, if he didn't work, if he didn't have that ethic, whatever it takes. He, Paul was brilliant. Probably smarter than anybody, anybody in here. Some of us put together. Brilliant. And look what God called him to do. I'm serious. Look what God called him to do. None of us have the right to be prima donnas. None of us have the right to act like entitled to anything. We should just say, Lord, whatever you, your will be done. Amen? Your will be done. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. Who said that? Jesus. <laughs> Who's more amazing than Jesus Christ? Who's more noble than Jesus Christ? Who is wiser than Jesus Christ? You ready? Donut, nobody. Not even close. Who deserved more than Jesus Christ? Nobody. And they killed him. And he made it all the way. And he carried his cross. Not just spiritually, physically as well. Until someone helped, but you know the story. He hung on that cross. You're going to tell me that wasn't physical? Tell me that wasn't hard work? Ephesians 5.13, you're there, right? Ephesians 5, it's just a mindset. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Some of that's happening for some of you right now. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Does that not sound like our nation right now? We're like sore thumbs. I don't even know where to turn anymore. How about you? This is, the, this is like one of my, the only places, besides my own home, of course, but it's, it's the only place I can actually turn for any solace. Because as soon as you step out there, it's a bunch of, of antichrists. Nobody wants, it's very few people you come across even want to talk about Jesus Christ. So we have to go out and we have to search and find and, and help the brethren to do the, the same. Lift each other up. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. I mean, maybe, maybe something you do behind the scenes is. Maybe you're the, maybe the person who sends money to those, like the orphanage. I don't know, that's between you and the Lord. 
But money doesn't grow on trees, does it? Last time I checked. And you might say, well, I don't have any money to give. Here's a shovel. You don't have any money because you don't work. The only time you ever work is for yourself. So you can spend it on your own pleasures. But I really want to support the orphans. Here's a shovel. Whoa. See how it goes? How quickly these messages fall to the wayside. Yet the Bible says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And I'll close with this. Given that the Lord has revealed real purpose for us, the point is that we don't misappropriate our lives once we're saved because we're deceived by sin. We're lied to. And we get bad doctrines even. Some of them have to be rooted out of us. Some of them have been there since you were, I don't know, 10, 20 years old. I don't know. It's just bad doctrines, bad data. And for years, your conscience ran on bad data, so it didn't haunt you necessarily. But now you have good data. And that's why some of you, in your head, I don't know, maybe some of you in your head are going, la, 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 I don't want to hear anymore. Because my conscience is going through the roof. I don't want to pick up a shovel, la, 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 la. <laughs> but that's just a misappropriation of the thing, the life that, you, that was purchased for you. You've been given the privilege and the honor. And you say you want to obey. You say you love Jesus Christ. Well, then lay down your life. Right? Up here on the board, I'll give you this last one. We'll close. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, ah, serve. Fit for service. Ready for service. Serve one another. Amen? Uh, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for humbling us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking us in as children into your home. Father, one day we're going to uh, appreciate it all the more in heaven. Can't wait. Thank you for the hope as well. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our own homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.